Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. No-fault divorce means Australian courts generally will not consider why a marriage has ended. And statistically, many once-happy unions do. Family law specialist Nicole Evans is here to explain why divorce battles turn ugly and how you can navigate the system to avoid that post-marriage messiness. Nicole, welcome. Thank you. Just to begin things, if people are going through a divorce, what is the number one reason why they need a lawyer and can people go this alone? Yeah, sure. I think the main reason people should have a lawyer is to give them advice along the way, a bit of a helping hand. It's a really difficult process to go through. I always say to my clients, it's a bit of a roller coaster ride. Sometimes things are great and sometimes things get really bad. But a lawyer can give you, you know, good advice on what your rights are, your entitlements, and, you know, just give you a helping hand through the process. So from the initial conversation where a couple sits down and says, we're done here, Are you able to break that process down for me of what happens after that? I think it's over conversation. Yeah, sure. So what we would normally do with a client is say, in terms of property, we need to work out what the assets and liabilities are of the parties. And you'd be surprised when, you know, there's actually quite a lot of clients will say, I don't even know what we own. So the first step would be to get financial disclosure from both parties. Mm -hmm. So bank statements, credit card, loan documents, We normally sift through those to see what current balances are, what the parties own together in terms of properties, shares, and we sit down and work out what their assets and liabilities are in a balance sheet. Once we've got the balance sheet sorted, then we can work out what each party may be entitled to, and then we will sit down and come up with a proposal that the client's happy with. Once there's agreement on that, then we would draft a set of documents called an application for consent orders and consent orders, and then those get filed in the family court registry. A lot of us have seen movies like Kramer versus Kramer and Marriage Story and there seems to then be a perception that the minute the lawyers are called in, it turns ugly and very, very messy. But is that always the case? I mean, can there be situations where calling a lawyer in is actually the process that can keep the peace rather than beginning the sort of I'll see you in court style showdowns? Yeah, absolutely. And more and more these days people you know, see the, the time and cost involved in going through the family court and want an alternative option. So, you know, the collaborative, you know, divorce process is becoming more and more common and people will sign collaborative agreements saying that they both agree not to go to court and they'll sit down and go through sort of like a mediation process over a few months with, you know, accountants, financial advisors, uh, child experts to come up with an agreement in terms of property and parenting that works for everybody. Often people may be reluctant to engage lawyers because of a concern about the cost and particularly when they might be thinking that what was once one pot has then been split into two. How is that cost determined when people are engaging lawyers? Does that come out of a joint asset or are people responsible for bearing their own costs? Generally, each party is responsible for bearing their own costs. 
And that can create a bit of a power imbalance in some situations. There can be orders made by the court for a dollar-for-dollar order. So if one party has access to significant funds and the other doesn't, Mm. you might make an application for that type of order. So every time the ex spends a dollar on his legal fees or her legal fees, then the other party gets a dollar as well. There's also legal funding options now for people if there's property. Some lawyers do fixed fees or payment on settlement. So there are a lot of options for people now. This is probably a very broad question, but how much does it cost to go through the divorce process with a lawyer? That's a very, very broad question. (laughs) Look, a simple divorce process of just we want to get divorced Mm -hmm. um, is relatively cheap and parties can do it themselves. Separate to the divorce order, you have your property settlement or parenting arrangements. So Mm. if you can't agree on any of those things and you're in court for a couple of years, you're looking at at least, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Is the most common reason for engaging a lawyer in the divorce process having children? Like, is this an easier process for, for couples who don't have kids? Yeah, generally speaking, yes. When children are involved, people do become more emotional, obviously. It's a a priceless item (laughs) of the relationship. Mm. So, yes, generally if there's children, it'll end up being more fought over than money. Mm. And it's probably in those situations, I imagine, incredibly difficult to go alone without a lawyer. Absolutely, yeah, yep. Obviously, in Australia, there is no-fault divorce. Does that mean exactly what it says it is. So if I'm responsible for a breakup, no judge is going to come and tell me what a terrible spouse I was in the process. Yeah, look, I mean, it's very common that people have affairs, Mm -hmm. but from the court's perspective, it's a no-fault jurisdiction. So you don't get a slap over the wrist because you cheated on your spouse. (laughs) But if that has impacted the children, then that's where it will be relevant, you know, in terms of parenting, but not really relevant in terms of property. Mm. So if people have an idea that they can come to court and lay out to their former partner, here is everything that you did wrong in the course of our marriage. That's not what the court process is like. No, and the court doesn't like parents who file affidavits bagging out the other parent. Bad form. Yes. How possible are dead-on 50-50 splits in divorces? Look, if the parties agree, then you can move forward with 50-50. So if, you know, the parties agree on whatever arrangements they like, that can be documented in consent orders. If they don't agree, then it will go to court and a judge will decide. For parenting, 50-50 arrangements will generally only, you know, be made when the parties, you know, live close by, have a good relationship, there's not high conflict and the children have a good attachment to both of them Mm. and normally when the kids are of school age. How frequently do you see sort of protracted custody battles? And I know that Often in the media, we've seen high-profile cases or people will talk about the father's rights. How does a father fight for custody in a family court battle? Yeah, look, in the family court, father has the same, you know, equal rights as a mother does. Both parents generally will share parental responsibility, which means making major decisions for children in relation to health, education, you know, overseas travel. And generally, orders are made for equal parental responsibility, unless there's, you know, domestic violence, issues of risk, mental Mm. health issues. So, you know, from a a first point, a father would have the same rights. Talk me through a little bit how things differ when allegations of domestic violence are involved in a marriage breakdown. Yeah, look, if there are allegations of domestic violence, 
particularly when kids are involved, the court will always err on the side of caution until those allegations can be determined in a criminal court. So at a first sort of interim hearing in parenting cases, it's about minimisation of risk of harm to children. So putting orders in place where the children may be able to spend, you know, still meaningful time with a parent who may be the subject of those allegations, but in a safe way for the children. Because unfortunately, allegations are made in cases where a party thinks it might give them an advantage. And, you know, because of the time frame it takes to get through the family court, you might end up in a situation where a father, you know, or a mother doesn't get to see their children or spend meaningful time with them for, you know, it could be one to two or three years. So it's about putting in place some orders that protect the children, but it still allow them to spend time with parents. Mm. Of course, that's different in cases of serious domestic violence. The court, as I said, until those allegations are dealt with, will put orders in place to protect children and the parties as well. When there have been allegations of domestic violence made and that process can take a long time to be analysed by a court, what happens to the kids in that interim stage? The court will want to make sure that the children are still spending time with each parent if it's safe to do so and they'll put mechanisms in place to ensure that it is safe, including supervised contact with one parent or time through a contact centre. And supervised time might sound a bit scary Mm. when you first hear the term, um, but it can also be to protect a party who's had the allegations made against them. They'll do very detailed reports on each contact, which are actually really helpful Mm -hmm. for the parties and for the court. Do they make those assessments while the visit is happening or is that something that they do afterwards? Yep, so they'll Mm. take notes and then normally a couple of days after they'll send through a really detailed report on what's happened during that contact, conversations between the parent and the child, you know, physical interactions, you know, whether they think there's a genuine happy attachment and relationship or whether they have any concerns. What happens in a situation where an allegation of domestic violence has been made and someone wants to really challenge that accusation? If there's a family court allegation of domestic violence and there's not a criminal allegation, then that Mm. allegation will be defended in the family court. So affidavits will be filed and ultimately people will be cross-examined on whether it happened and a judge will make a decision on basically who they believe. If there's allegations and there may also be related criminal charges, then a criminal court will determine whether they believe that it happened. And again, you know, the parties file statements, they're cross-examined and a magistrate will decide Uh, who's most credible. If there's witnesses, then that obviously assists the court. But ultimately, you know, the judge or magistrate will make that determination. Is it the same standard of proof when a family court judge assesses it as it would be if the person had been charged in a criminal court? That's a very good question. (laughs) It's not actually. So Mm. in a criminal jurisdiction, if a person's charged with assaulting their spouse, to be convicted, it's uh, beyond reasonable doubt. And in the family court, it's a balance of probabilities of whether that happened. Mm. In the court case, and while the court case is ongoing, judges and those involved don't want people to use the case as an attempt to sort of prosecute what went wrong in their marriage. Is there any time along the process where people want to have the chance to sort of sit down and say, emotionally, this has been the impact of the marriage and the and the ending of the marriage? And do you, as the lawyer, often have to be that support person providing assistance to someone when they are feeling really vulnerable after the end of their marriage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you are supporting a person through what can be one of the most difficult things to go through in their life. And part of 
being a good lawyer, I think, is also being a part counsellor. <laughs> yeah. You are holding their hand and supporting them and they do always, you know, want someone to talk to and often through that process when something happens or goes wrong, you're the first person they call even if it's not a legal issue mm. because they feel like you understand what they're going through. And we'll always say to clients, you know, you should get some counselling and support through the process because it is difficult. And often they do want a time and a place when they can ventilate, you know, those issues of what they think happened to them in the relationship or what went wrong. And, you know, mediation is a really good way of doing that because it's all off the record so nobody can use what the other person said in court. But it's a good way to ventilate how they feel and for the other person to acknowledge what happened and for the parties to try and move on together from it. Mm, almost feels like a sort of quasi-restorative justice yeah, model of getting people to sit down yeah. and sort of say, this is how I feel when this happened mm. and, and I suppose express sadness and I suppose also regret as well for their own part. Like I'm mm. sure in a, a lot of most of cases do you see it's sort of an equal responsibility of the marriage ending or do you typically see it's more one person's sort of really stuffed up? Yeah, a bit of both. I mean, I think there's always two parties to blame generally for a breakdown. Things go wrong and it sort of escalates. But, yeah, look, there are cases where someone's had an affair or just up and left the spouse and the kids for no sort of apparent reason. Mm. Um, but, yeah, look, you see you see everything. Do you see a fair bit of blindsiding in regard to things like if you've seen hidden spending discovered or secret accounts or secret lives? Like, how common is that? Unfortunately, the cases that we see, it's pretty common. That's intense. Through the financial disclosure process, you know, a party will go through their ex's bank details with a fine tooth comb <laughs> and highlight certain transactions. <laughs> um, what is this? <laughs> so, yeah, look, it's been a few cases where a spouse has uncovered certain spending habits, which hasn't been very pleasant for them, mm -hmm. uh, not knowing that that was going on in the relationship. What are some of the cases that you've seen like that? Yeah, so cases where people have excessive gambling, excessive use of you know, prostitution, online shopping, you name it, I think we've seen it. Yeah, wow. Mm. That really covers quite a spectrum of, of spending habits. Mm, mm. How frequently do you see situations where someone's attempted or does sort of clean out a bank account or sort of get removalists to the house and take everything out of the house and sort of leaving someone thinking like, I've got no money or my stuff's been cleaned out. Like how frequently do those sorts of situations occur? Yeah, look, it, it, it really does depend on the way the relationship ended as to how the parties behave. And when I see a client for the first time, I'll always ask, how did the relationship end? Mm. Because a lot of the time you can tell, you know, how the other person's going to behave because of that. But yeah, look, lots of occasions where parties have gone to buy food for dinner and the credit card's been declined wow. because the bank account's been cleared out. So always make sure that you've got joint signatories on any joint bank accounts once you separate. What about situations where someone's sort of arrived back at home and sort of everything in the house has been taken out from underneath them? Does that sort of behaviour occur? Yeah, absolutely. It's not as common, particularly with children, but certainly people will, you know, again, be out at work or shopping and come home and photos in frames have been replaced and furniture's gone and they've had absolutely no idea that their ex was in the house that day and clearing things out. Is that legal or is it just a bad thing to do, just wrong? It's a bad thing to do. The court's not going to like it. 
It's not illegal if you're withdrawing money from a joint bank account and ultimately the court will take that into account on any final property division. So mm. if a party does that, it's not like they get to keep it ultimately. Mm. It will be taken into account. And look, and the same with furniture. If the property is owned jointly, both of you have legal access to the property and you can go in and take whatever furniture you want. But again, it's not a good look and you certainly wouldn't be advising anyone to do that. What happens with debt in a marriage? Does that then become a dispute of someone saying, well, I paid off more of the mortgage or I I was the high income earner, I contributed more to the rent and, and how can courts assess debt and who's responsible for carrying that debt into the future? Yeah, when we do a balance sheet, we look at the party's assets and liabilities. So debt will always go on as a liability. When it's in the balance sheet, it belongs to both parties. So when we work out the entitlements of each of the parties, we look at uh, what their contributions were coming into the relationship, their financial and non-financial contributions during and then we look at what their future needs are. So their, their ages, their health, earning capacity, and who's going to have care of the children. These are obviously quite serious things to be determining what belongs to who. What's been the most frivolous thing that you've seen people fight over? Yeah, look, people fighting over the family pet, a particular painting that someone's gifted during the relationship, and the parties are so upset with each other that they'll spend all day and will be prepared to pay their lawyers <laughs> more than the cost of the actual item that they're fighting over. <laughs> to say that belongs to me. Absolutely. Just so their ex doesn't get it. <laughs> they're like, I'm going to take this and just throw it in the bin once I've received it. Yeah, I mean, just... they'll be, you know, people will say, I don't want it. I just don't want them to have it. Well, with pets, how, how frequently do people fight over pets? Look, pretty common actually and more and more these days. We'll be drafting parenting orders and property orders. And in the property orders, there'll be clauses around who retains the family dog, mm. uh, visitation for the other parent, who's going to pay the vet costs and cost of food mm. and vet expenses. It's funny now because everyone, we always refer to ourselves as fur parents, but pets still fall under property, not parenting orders. Yes. <laughs> for now. <laughs> for now. It should be some kind of fur parent amendment if someone is arguing over a pet, do people come down to like, well, you know that the dogs always liked me more than you? Like how do people sort of interrogate it or is it just like I was always the more responsible owner than you or something like that? Yeah, it'll be who initially wanted the pet, <laughs> who spent the most time with it, who's going to be more available to take it for walks, for example, mm. or if, you know, one parent has the children, then they'll say, well, we've got the kids, so we want the, the dog to stay with the kids. I have a son just have visions in my head of like a dog or a cat being like in the middle and being like, which, <laughs> who are you going to like, yeah. who are you going to come to? A cat would probably be like, neither of you. Ask, <laughs> ask the cat to choose. Exactly. The cat's like, I don't want either of you. I just want everything to myself. Yeah. How do you account for sort of emotional value of something versus real value? So say I'm thinking of an example, like a painting. Mm -hmm it may not actually be worth that much. It might not be some sort of gallery-worthy painting. How much of a factor does emotional value come into something or is a court strictly there to look and say when working out assets to say this is financially worth this much? Does emotional value come into that at all? Not really. It's more around the, you know, financial value of the item. But certainly if the parties can't agree and they go to a final hearing, then that person would be able to make submissions to the court on why they should retain that item sort of separate to the value of it. So it might be a family heirloom that's been passed down through generations, you know, and that's something that the court would consider. Spousal maintenance is a phrase that I often hear bandied about. What exactly is spousal maintenance? 
Yeah, so spousal maintenance is payments made from one party to another on separation and it's based on one party's capacity to pay the other and the other party's need for it. So if you look at a say a stereotypical situation of a, a mum and a dad and dad's been the breadwinner, has been on a high income and they've separated and mum's been at home with the kids and on separation dad's still got that high income but mum mm-hmm. hasn't worked for you know, 10 to 20 years, so need some time to retrain. So the court might order spousal maintenance in that situation so that the mum has some funds coming in for a period of time until she can do a course or retrain and get a job in the area that she'd like to work in. And I suppose if we're thinking in a a more gendered line of saying someone who's had the mother role Mm -hmm. and they may have said, well, I I raised your children for you and Mm -hmm. you would never have reached the heights that you did professionally if I wasn't at home raising your kids for you and maintaining a house, Mm. is spousal maintenance almost a way of a recognition of the emotional labour that perhaps someone did at the expense of their own professional ambition? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, one party has sacrificed their career to take on that role of being the homemaker parent and the court looks at that contribution now as an equal contribution to that breadwinner role. And we look at, you know, it's the role of the homemaker parent and it's seen as very valuable. Have you ever seen an example in spousal maintenance where someone has taken advantage of that system and sort of stretched things out past a point, I suppose, in in terms of waiting to get new employment or something like that, or have have really tested the limits of of that system and the good faith that it's built upon? There's always those cases where people sometimes might take advantage of the system and because their spouses had such a, a high income and, you know, for them it's, well, you know, maybe I'll just accept this and not have to do anything for a while and just enjoy life and let them look <laughs> after me for a little while. <laughs> it's been a couple of years now since Australia has had marriage equality. Were there any problems that same-sex couples run into, including some people who perhaps had gotten married in countries that legislated marriage equality before Australia did? Yeah, we had a lot, you know, we've had lots of people get married overseas in jurisdictions where it was legal before it was legal in Australia. And, you know, for the past few years, it has been legal here. And the law now recognises people that were married overseas as being married here. And then subsequently on separation, uh, those parties have tried to get divorced and have run into a few difficulties because they don't live in the country that they got married in. Oh, wow. Mm. So do you then have to return to the country to file that paperwork? Yeah. So originally it was, you know, do we have to get a divorce in that jurisdiction or can we get it here in Australia? So Mm. Australian courts will now recognise that. Oh, okay. And they can... Because the parties now live here. Mm. So they can process the end of that relationship and then help if then people subsequently want to get married in Australia. Yes. With same-sex partnerships where people have gotten married overseas, but before that was legally recognised in Australia, what happened before marriage equality? How did people formally recognise the end of a relationship if it at that stage wasn't even formally recognised in Australia? Yeah, unfortunately, they didn't have to do anything because the law didn't recognise it here. It never existed. So technically, they weren't married and they didn't need to get divorced. I wanted to ask you a little bit about prenups Mm -hmm. and I imagine in your work every day in the family court, you see couples who at what point in time stood up in front of everybody that they loved and said that they would be together forever and love each other forever. And I suppose in in that, the love rush of planning a wedding, people don't like to have conversations about prenups Mm -hmm. because it feels like 
a little bit of insurance that you're taking out of like, of course, I'll love you forever. This is all beautiful and wonderful and perfect. However, (laughs) if things turn badly, what advice do you have on prenups Mm -hmm. and how bad is it if you don't have one? They're tricky, tricky, tricky things these days. A lot of family lawyers won't touch them. Mm, Interesting. um, Why? Because they are more and more so becoming overturned. Mm. The family court is about sort of fairness and equity and prenup, we call them financial agreements, (laughs) are generally made in a situation where one party has significant assets and another party doesn't. So the court will always look at, you know, the length of relationship. Do they get married? Are there children? It may not be what's just an equitable uh, mm. At the end, you know, sometimes a party gets given an agreement to sign a day before the wedding or, <laughs> you know, just before they're about to walk down the aisle. <laughs> well, um, I've got you. <laughs> uh, and in cases like that, you know, you do see sometimes they get overturned because of duress, because mm. the party feels like, well, if I don't sign the agreement, then we won't be getting married. So I have to sign it. Also imagine at a time when you're planning a wedding, it's almost like people are like, I mean, don't worry, like we'll never use it because we're never going to split up. Mm. How petty have you seen things get in family court battles? Yeah, look, as I said before, people can get very, very petty. People will sit in court and say to you, I don't care how much it costs. I would rather you have all the money than my spouse. What do you say when someone says something like that to you? <laughs> say, that's, that's, that's great. Intense. That's great. <laughs> but actually, at the end of this process, I want you to walk out and be happy and to be able to move forward and... I know you feel that way today, but you'll wake up in the morning feeling very different and actually that money also belongs to your children. So Mm. I know it's really difficult, but you've got to think about the future and think about your children and try and move forward in a positive way. Do you experience this, that people get sort of a rush of blood to the head, that when they're in right in the middle of dividing all of this up, it, it does become more adversarial and combative? And then do you see after that process, people all of a sudden like a, almost like a white line fever that people are like, oh, wow, that got quite intense and I got quite competitive about, you know, items of furniture or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. You get caught up in the process and it becomes for some people about winning. So it's good to, you know, tell someone to have some time out, take some time away, take a few days, go away, think about it, talk to family and make sure you're making the best decision for you and your children moving forward. Do you get many repeat clients? <laughs> Funny question. Yeah, look, I've had clients who will be counting down the days until their divorce order takes effect so mm. that they can book their wedding to their next spouse. <laughs> <laughs> so it's usually it's about a year. Is that it's a year from divorce? See, we have to be separated for 12 months before you can file an application for divorce. Mm-hmm. And then that divorce will take effect one month and one day from the divorce hearing. So people will be, you know, slotting in the calendar the day after that, <laughs> to, to, to plan the wedding. My the divorce wedding. day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know if working in family law, you have an array of happy stories and happy <laughs> endings, but do you have some examples of stories where things have come together quite seamlessly and people have perhaps been unhappily married, but happily divorced? Yeah, absolutely. There's always the, the happy ending stories where people, the conscious uncoupling. Um, (laughs) They may may not have worked really well together, but once they've separated, they've had a great co-parenting relationship, introduced new partners Mm. and, you know, really positively co-parented their children, you know, and much happier. We've had cases where during the separation process, people have reconciled and got back together and, you know, lived happily ever after. 
Do you sometimes find it difficult that, and I'm thinking of some movies and and popular culture that centre on divorce, and they often do paint lawyers as the bad guys in the situations that it's almost like you've got two people who just sort of want to go their separate ways and then it's the idea is that you have the lawyer coming in and being like, how dare they try and take that from you, that's yours. How frustrating is that in your job when you're there trying to help people resolve this in as peaceful manner as possible? Yeah, sometimes it's hard and I think it's, you know, if you know the lawyer on the other side, that's always really valuable to pick Mm -hmm. up the phone and have conversations, try and de-escalate the situation as best you can. As family lawyers, yes, you're there to litigate sometimes, but ultimately you're there to try and help everybody resolve something in a way that works for everybody so that they can move on. After everything we've talked about today, about the situations where things can go wrong and plenty of things can go wrong, I want to end by asking, do you think people should get married? Do you believe in marriage? Yeah, look, I think as a family lawyer, when you see day in and day out, you know, the worst of people, you have to believe that fairy tales do exist and, you know, there are happy endings. So absolutely, life's Mm. short. (laughs) (laughs) You know, from my perspective, you still want to believe in love and happiness and that things can work out. Nicole, that's all been so helpful and often what I can imagine is an incredibly stressful, probably the one of the most stressful times that people will ever go through in their life is making the decision to get divorced and I think you've really helped navigate that system and show that there, even if your happy ending isn't with your now ex-partner, there is still an opportunity for a happy ending for your life. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. What you heard in today's episode is not intended as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified professional. I'm not even a lawyer, remember? So if you are looking for legal advice based on your individual circumstances, head to lawfullyexplained.com.au and find the solicitor who is right for you. Lawfully Explained is a listener production in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales, hosted by me, Amy Dale. Production by Emily Takato, and executive producer is Todd Stevens. Listener.